it's valuable and it cannot be held by physical hands, it's probably worth holding on to. This is Immaterial Treasures. I'm your host, Dan Fee Parker. Thank you for tuning in. Good afternoon, everyone. It's afternoon here. Today is my birthday. And I'm here with my father, Jerry Wallace. Uh, it's a very special day for me to be here with him as we've been uh, on quite the roller coaster in this last few months. So I'm very happy to uh, spend this day with him and to be able to get some time to go over some of our memories and just uh, the journey that they've been on even recently and how their lives progressed. Dad, what, uh, what do you want to share with everyone as, in regards to where you are today over the last two months? Well, uh, for sure, it's been a, we call it the journey through the valley of the shadow of death, a uh, familiar scripture found in Psalm 23, and came very unexpectedly as I'm bus driver, I went to the doctor to do my physical for my license, and uh, mentioned to him at that point in time, that was in November, a couple months ago, that uh, I was experiencing a few kind of discomfort in my stomach and uh, feeling like a tension or anxiety or something. And he said, well, uh, Jerry, let's do some tests. And so we ran a, an x-ray on my chest and the uh, on my stomach uh, ultrasound, and he phoned me up a just about a day later after we did the x-ray, and he said, Jerry, we better come to the office, and we need to talk. And so I was in the office, and he said then, he says, your wife in the waiting room? And I said, yeah. And while he went to get her, I was sitting there thinking, okay, uh, what's this all about? And he brought her in, he sat down, he said, the x-ray, we found a spot on your lung, and by all outward, looks like you might have lung cancer. Well, you could have lined us up against the wall and shot us with a shotgun. That's what kind of the effective was. And from that whole process of that x-ray, then we went to more scans, and, and then they found that the cancer that they thought was in my lung had actually spread down into my bowels and my kidneys. And then we went to the hospital in Ottawa, and surgeons came and talked to us about possible surgery and looked like I had an infection and one of my bowels had perforated and there was cancer everywhere. And they said, there's really nothing we can do for you. And and uh, just kind of go home and prepare for the end. And that was just like in a f- short time. It was like, wow, just from, uh, from the spot of my lung to all of a sudden this death sentence on me and we were like well just very traumatic hoping that our children were going to be able to make it home and in time before I actually passed away making funeral arrangements and burial plot and all those things are just kind of a very shocking shocking journey in the midst of this valley you know this valley got so dark and seemed very steep And yet we found that our Lord, who is our, he said, I will be with you in this valley. And we found him to be that for us. So here we are. We're still in this journey, not too sure the actual results. We're 
We've had some sunlight along the way. Uh, actually, their cancer doctor has phoned us up and wants us to come back into the Ottawa hospital and do some more tests and check us out. So we're, we're kind of a hopeful point in time of our journey right now. So that's kind of the capsule of where we are on this whole journey right now, Amy. Yeah, and well, just to uh, fill in on that a bit, I was in Ghana with Danfi on our kind of our vacation, and um, I was a bit hesitant to even go on this vacation based on Dad's uh, prognosis. But we were kind of in a waiting zone and waiting on a biopsy result, and just not really sure, you know when treatment was going to start, what they were going to say. So we just went ahead with the trip anyway, thinking, you know, um, this was the best time for us. And when I was there, I think it was about 12 days in, well, maybe 10 days in, um, I get the, the message from my mom that dad's been admitted to the hospital with the infection, the perforated bowel, and basically... Not really sure if he was going to make it uh, over the course of a few days. So I can imagine uh, the uh, stress I was feeling being uh, that far away and seeing pictures of my family gathering together at the hospital. And so, of course, Danfi and I made plans for me to take a flight back. And I still had to wait two days, but uh, it, it did come together perfectly. And um, Danfi's sisters helped me out a lot with that. They made the arrangements for me and picked me up and brought me winter clothes and everything like that so I could uh, make the transition and i um, really grateful for all the support I've had just even from our church praying and uh, people and friends and community and we've had tremendous support from the Harmony Church and just uh, people bringing meals and coming to visit. Uh, it's been a constant influx and everyone's coming with a prayer and word of encouragement or blessing and except for the doctors of course we had a few moments there with the uh, <laughs> uh my brother and I just sitting there while the doctor uh offered my dad assisted suicide that was an interesting moment none to say the least but uh this is the great nation we live in right you can kill yourself or kill your baby freedom right but anyway, thank God uh, we have a different view of life. And my dad is here, doing quite well. Now he's home. Thank the Lord. Starting to eat a little bit. And that was one of my prayers on my flight on the way back. I said, Lord, please, I want to spend my birthday with my dad. So I feel that's an answer to prayer and thankful. Yeah, we're so thankful. Uh, it's wonderful. I've been the journey that we've been on. I've had such clarity of my mind and, and absolutely no pain. The antibiotics really took care of the infection in my stomach. And just wonderful, wonderful privileges and opportunities in the hospital to talk to doctors and share our faith. And pray, I pray with them. Eight, had eight surgeons in the, in the room, all crowded in the room. And they all bowed their heads and we prayed with them. What a, what a, just a, I'm so proud of our medical field and what they've accomplished and and their bedside manner was just wonderful. We have uh, I have no complaints about the way they 
Mind you, they're very technical, and they give you just basically what they believe is happening, and they're uh, they're not of a faith factor, and they're to give you the the hard, cold facts. And yet, we as believers in uh, in the Lord Jesus Christ and a miracle worker, we we always believe that God is able and He can heal and bring renewal and strength and hope way beyond what doctors can say. And yet there is a point where you have to kind of, there is a place where you have to, the realism of what they've given to you and compute that. It can be a, it can be a difficult thing to deal with. And how do we bring that all out? I've, uh, I, I talked to my doctor, uh, the one that talked about suicide. And yet I, uh, he asked me some questions. He sat down one day and he said, well, well, what about sickness? And what about war in this world that we live in? And, how do you how do you deal with that as a person of faith? He said there can't be a God if that these things are allowed in our world. And I was so glad that he mentioned those things because he gave me a wonderful opportunity to share where sickness has come from, all because of our choice. And and if you think about Adolf Hitler, and it was a man's choice. War didn't come about because of itself. It was a man's choice for power and greed that brought about the loss of thousands and thousands of lives and devastation because of choice. And so God gives us that choice to to love him and serve him because uh, he wants us to love him. And we can choose to go our own way. We can choose to decide to do our own thing and, and face the consequences of those things. And so it is our journey here that I said to him, he said, ask me, I said, do you have questions I said, well, yeah, I, I have questions. I've asked God, why? Why me? What, Even what did I do wrong? And, you know, why would this happen to me? And as a person of faith, I think we're still allowed to ask God questions. We're not zombies going around without any kind of reasoning. And he, and he, and he looked at me in surprise, and he said, really? You, you really have questions as a person of faith? I, I, I didn't think a person of faith would be able to even question the psalmist, if you read in the Bible there, he, he calls out many times and, you know, deliver me speedily, Lord, and why, and where do I go? And and we, as our Christian walk, we're in a constant journey asking God where and what and why. And yet there's the faith comes in and says, Lord, your will, your way. Ultimately, we trust in him and everything that we've done. And we've had that in 40 years of ministry that we've traveled so it's been a, this journey of through the valley of the shadow of death has been a dark, difficult journey at times. Bonnie and I, my wife of 40 years, we've held each other and cried and, and prayed and hoped and believed and, and uh, trusted. Been a difficult time at times, and yet the Lord has opened up so many windows of opportunity to talk to people and share. And you know, Our hospital room became a a place, a sanctuary of prayer, people coming in constantly and praying with us. It has just been, in one way, very, very exciting. Very, very exciting. That brings me to uh, some of the questions I wanted to ask in regards to this journey. And though we are praying for God to extend your life and to give you many more years to do a miracle, that's what we're asking and we're praying we also want to reflect on uh, what 
what the journey has been, where it began, how did we get here? So I kind of wanted to go back to the beginning when you first received the Lord, go way back. I know we have a, a testimony from my, my grandfather coming to the Lord when he was 40 years old, Poppy, we call him. That's dad's dad. And that was a big part of your story. Yeah, I wanted to ask you a little bit about the early days, the first years of calling and how that kind of unfolded for you. Well, for sure, Amy, it's been an exciting journey, and we see God's hand, wow, extended mercy extended to us so so wonderfully over the years. Way back, uh, I was about 12 years old when my father was an alcoholic and came to the Lord through a very wonderful transformation in his in an alcohol-ridden home, and my mother praying and going to Sunday school, and we us being picked up by a little Sunday school teacher and taking us to Sunday school, and me coming home from Sunday school with these stories of Jesus, and I really hadn't known too much about him. My mother had, hadn't shared. And so it was a kind of an exciting journey beginning to share with my father, and he eventually coming to the Lord. And going to a little a little Methodist church, bringing us there. But as a uh, young person growing into my teen years, you know, there's the, that's what my dad did, and this is what I'm going to do. And I was going on my own way. I was working as a draftsman at the Ottawa Hydro, and I had my job and my car, and I just wanted speed. And in other words, not speed you inject, but speed down the road fast with this little black beauty falcon I had. And that was my dream to f- just make more money and get a faster and faster car, perhaps race someday. And in the midst of that, I was I had a vivacious appetite for reading. My mother, when we were children, she started taking us to the library to get books. And so we would go to the library every couple of weeks and we'd get a bunch of books and bring them home. And I began to devour stories of adventure and uh, World War II story, escape stories, and everything that I could find of adventure. And I came across a story of a man by the name of Nate Saint. And he was a airplane pilot into the jungles of Ecuador, South America. And he was with a team of five missionaries, and they went in to try and help these uh, headhunters and killers and try and share the gospel with them. And, and this neat saint was a, an inventor. He loved to build things, and they would drop him in the middle, middle of a jungle with a broken-down airplane and say, parachute in there and get that thing running. And it just captivated me that this was a Christian man. This was a man of adventure, a man that is uh, so capable to survive on his own and fix his airplane that had crashed and and the only way he could get out is if he built the airplane and it flew it out himself. I was just so captivated. I, I thought, how can this be? You know, I always thought a Christian, if you were gonna serve God, you had to be either a preacher or a teacher or, you know, something. And here was this great adventurer man, along with his other buddies that were in the jungle. And I thought, is it possible that this Christian life could be just more than going to church and, you know, singing in the choir or teaching Sunday school. Not that those things were wrong or 
dull, but to me as a young man, I was just hungry for adventure and searching. And so in my bedroom one night, when I was about 19 years old, I had become trouble. I was starting to drink and going to parties and and uh, still feeling fu- unfulfilled. And I bowed my head right in my bedroom by myself and simple little prayer, say, Lord Jesus, I, can you transform my life? Can you change me? Can you, can you give me the longing of my heart that I'm looking for? And that was the beginning. He walked in my bedroom on my little room up there at the top in Greeley, Ontario, and my life was transformed and changed. And, and then began the, the, the exciting journey that I, we ventured out on. That, that was the kind of the initial beginning, Amy, and there's more yeah. to the story. Interesting to hear it in a different way. Just uh, thankful for that day that came for you and even for our grandparents because they paved the way for us in many ways. Mm-hmm. Uh, we didn't really come from, I mean, there were Christians kind of here and there in our um, background on your side, but not really a strong faith background more sure. of, more of a kind of nominal anglican yeah united church i'm not even sure great grandparents but um i don't think nanny's father not sure he had any faith no there were we came from probably a a very alcoholic driven background all my relatives on both sides were heavy drinkers my father was a heavy drinker drank every every night after work and then every weekend was spent in alcohol. So that was the beginning of my, my journey. And then I was working at the hydro, still as a young man, and I'd, I'd shared with my boss, I said, I've, I've had a change in life, and, and uh, yeah, I think God's calling me. And he, of course, he didn't understand. I said, I, I think I want, to go to, I want to go to Bible school. And he looked at me and was like, Jerry, you know, uh, I was really kind of training you to be the new director here in the drafting office and uh, you've got great desire and skills and hopefully you'd stick around. And I said, well, I'm, I'm going to leave. I'm going to quit my job and go to Bible school, which was a huge adventure for me. I didn't have money saved up. And uh, it was difficult on my father because he had always hoped I would have a secure job like that with a pension and all those Things and so when I left the to go to Bible school, that was it was a difficult journey for him to to lean on the Lord for me. Sometimes when we do things, our parents have a struggle with it because they know that they're going to have to have faith because of what our children are doing, as we have had with our six children and all their different adventures, including Amy here. Precious, what God has done in her life. So I went to Bible school for three or four years and. God began to direct me onto a, into evangelism, which I never thought. What happened was there was an organization called Child Evangelism Fellowship, and a lady came around to my home because my mother used to hold what in her kitchen what was called good news clubs for children in the neighborhood. She would have story time, a little song time right in her kitchen with these a handful of little children. And she would say, Jerry, I, I need you to draw a picture for me for my club because I had artistic kind of cartooning ability. 
And I would go, oh, okay, Mom, what do you want me to draw? And she was always saying to me, Jerry, you know, the Lord's got a plan. of, I believe he wants you to work with children. Why don't you go and coach a baseball team? And I was like, Mom, coach a baseball team? I just wanted to drive my car up and down the road and look at pretty blonde-haired girls. She <laughs> always had this vision of me working with children. And so I would draw her a little picture. But then the Lord began to develop this our artistic ability, and while I was uh, too sure if it was in Bible school or wherever, I, I traveled to a, a huge Sunday school convention they held in Detroit in Cobo Hall, huge co- convention with thousands and thousands of people would come and learning about how to do Sunday school. And in that convention, there was a man uh, by the name of uh, Sam Butcher, and if you're familiar with the Precious Moments figurines, those porcelain things, the little dolls with the big eyes, teardrop eyes, uh, you can buy them in the China store. Well, he was the inventor of those little dolls or these little porcelain things. And he was a Sunday school worker. And he was doing a workshop in this convention about how to do cartooning and how to do what they called chalk drawings. So I was like fascinated. Oh, I want to go to that. I want to learn something about that. And he did his workshop. And then after the workshop, he, I hung around kind of like, you know, a fly wanting to talk to him, learn anything more. Or is there something else I can, any tips? He said, well, uh, young man, how would you like to help me? I have to go move to another room. How would you like to help me pick up my equipment and take all this stuff and We can talk as we go. And so I got to hang around with Sam Butcher for a little while down the hall and into the next room where I helped him to set up. And he taught me how to do some cartooning that actually that I have done for 40 years and probably have drawn cartoons for thousands and thousands and thousands of children in our ministry, all because of Sam Butcher. He went on to become a multimillionaire and I didn't get to do that, but I've had a wonderful <laughs> privilege. And treasures in heaven. Yeah, treasures in heaven. Probably well, it was around, It was one of those God moments and just those intersections of time that only God can do. And and uh, so I started traveling in my own on my own doing children's ministry with with child evangelism. I traveled across the north all by myself, going into backyards and holding. It was kind of like Pied Piper, and back in that day, I would go into the city streets and town streets and say, hey, kids, I'm going to be in the park drawing pictures of cartoons. You want to come down? Probably be arrested today. But I would be walking down the road with maybe 15, 25 children all following me, like, you know, the Pied Piper, you know the story. And I'd, we'd all gather around a picnic table, and I'd pull out a flip chart Bible story and draw some cartoons and... Kids would be on the grass everywhere, and then we'd, I'd say, I'm coming back tomorrow, bring your friends. and Just incredible opportunities back in that time. Parents very trusting, you know, okay, go to the park, get out of my eyes type of thing. So that began, and then there was a, from that moment in time, uh, there was a lady that I was staying with, and she said, you know, there's this man has died. He was a traveling children's evangelist. For many, many years, and he has left his equipment to someone in a similar type of work like you. And I, she said, I think you should take over for him. 
And while I was only young, you know, probably, I don't know, I was in my 20s, I thought, well, whatever, I didn't know anything about that. And on that journey in the north, I was traveling, uh, staying in a man's home, and there was a gospel concert in town uh, where a family was singing, uh, they were traveling through, called the Singing Edwards. And I'd heard about them and known about them, and so I thought, hey, that would be great. And the guy had a particularly pretty daughter that I thought maybe I could take with me, and so I took her to the gospel concert. And then I saw one of the singers up on the platform. She was a beautiful blonde-haired girl. Wow. She had a black dress on, one of those straps around her neck, you know, with a ribbon on it or something, and her hair was so beautiful. And and, uh, playing a guitar, and she was up there singing with all her might, you know, loving Jesus. And I just thought, oh, I've made a terrible mistake. I've brought a date with me tonight. How do I get rid of this girl? I want to get, I want to find out, I want to find out about this girl that was singing. Her name was Bonnie Edwards. And so I think I, I think yeah. I brushed off my date. I told her to go get me a Coke or something so I could go and <laughs> talk to Bonnie. Of course, oh. she was a singer, you know, part of a group. And I was just another one of the crowd and didn't really kind of make any connection. <clears throat> but what happened, she left to go in her motor home. And she disappeared, and I thought, oh, man, I want to see this girl more. How, how can I make more of a connection? Oh, you were going to see this girl a lot more. And this little, her little sister, April Joy, <laughs> she was just a bubble talking 90 miles a minute. And I said to her, hey, you know, I, I've never seen the inside of your motorhome. Could think you could take me out and show me around. And, oh, yeah, that was to me. Oh, yeah, come on, follow me. And so I got to go out there. Bonnie was sitting out there in the motorhome, and I got to... I think I punched her in the shoulder or something, you know, some kind of dumb thing. But And then her sister <laughs> said to her later, her sister said, I think he likes you. And, April, and bon- Bonnie was Bonnie was like, oh, no, you know. <laughs> and so through that initial event, guess what? We, uh, we got connected again. and 40 years later. We've been married for 40 beautiful, wonderful year, years. She has been a faithful faithful partner. We traveled across the country. We built a big school bus and made it into a motorhome. Took all our kids, including Amy, out of school and homeschooled them and traveled through the States and Canada and and uh, been just a one of those dreams that you thought never would ever come true. So that's been a part of the journey so far, Amy. Yeah, it's, it's interesting for me to hear it again. And that's what part of this is about, just to go over some of the early days. And I'm just thankful for technology. And we can have these conversations and uh, share them with others. It's a real blessing. All right. Yeah, so from the early days, meeting mom, what made you decide you wanted to have six children? Or did that just happen? Oops. Uh, Well, actually... uh some were directly, very prophetically planned, whether you believe it or not. We were on our honeymoon in Quebec. We went to a ski resort. You're not going to believe this, but it actually happened. And wonderful honeymoon, Auburge, Black Rome, a little touch of Sweden in the middle of Quebec, a very romantic place. And... So we went out one day for, I don't know, we were going shopping and, you know, we kind of in the shopping mall, she went one way and I went another. And then I 
That was back before the days of cell phone when you phone each other in the mall and find out where you are. The I went searching for her, and I couldn't find her anywhere, and I found her. Uh, ladies, you're going to think is very interesting. I found her in the baby section on my honeymoon. So this is on our honeymoon. I found her in the baby section looking at little girl dresses on our honeymoon. And I looked at her and I said, what are you doing here? And she said, oh, isn't this cute? Look at these little dresses. And I thought, I grabbed her by the hand. I said, let's get out of here. What do you think you're, we're not going to have kids for a long time. Well, guess what? Little did you know. Ten months later, bum, bum, ba, dum, dum, ah, it began. It began. The baby factory began. Speaking of the baby factory, we have uh, one of the uh, other siblings here today, Andrew. So he's going to uh, he's going to join us for a little bit and uh, ask Dad a few questions and share. So here's Andrew. I just wanted to um, go over some of the uh, memories that I treasure growing up. Kind of got a context there of our adventurous upbringing. Didn't stop there. Kept going. High levels of intensity. He uh, was a good father. Cared for us. Wanted ours to have a good childhood, but lots of fun. It was important. So we uh, we we did have lots of fun. Made lots of uh, made some nice rinks for us growing up. Read us lots of stories. I just want to ask you how you got into the uh, Sugar Creek Gang stories and. Yeah, the Sugar Creek Gang books were like little. Little uh, little novels for bo- young boys, and kind of a, there was five little boys I think in the gang, and they all kind of went through these little adventures. There was little stories of, you know, why did this happen, and and they tried to solve the mystery. And so every night we would, I would get a sugar cane book out with my my boys Andrew and Daniel, and not too sure how old Matthew was at that time, but we'd start reading these. And I guess they came from my days of reading uh, the mysteries and the adventure novels whenever I was a teenager and had a great still love for that and wanted to sow that into my boys. It was kind of one of those, you know, every night you would get to this cliffhanger in the next chapter and say, well, tomorrow we're going to read the story. No, Daddy, don't. No, one more chapter. Don't stop now, Daddy. You know, it was always that difficult. Well, you know, we have to wait till tomorrow. And then it was like, Okay, sure, quick gang time. Everybody get into bed. And it was kind of a feed time for, you know, get your children to sleep at nighttime. Parents always have that struggle. Reading to your children is so important. If you're a parent out there, a young parent, read to them actual stories and adventure novels. We read missionary story after missionary story, really. Adult Mary Slessor and Amy Carmichael and fed into them the mystery and the adventure of serving God in the foreign field here and there. So that was poured into us. We had a great time, Andrew. Yeah, so I always look back in those days and uh, think, you know, that's a good thing. You want to have, have a lot of positive uh, stories in your mind and giving you inspiration. People don't want to be controlled. They want to be inspired. So that's uh, something you want to do and did well and i've lived a life full of adventure maybe a little too much but that's okay yeah jennifer we'll come back around 
Jennifer, find her equilibrium. Jennifer, our oldest daughter, she said, you know, Dad just never read, like, little stories to us. It was always some person marching through the jungle, you know, fighting off jaguars, saving little babies, you know. They weren't, they weren't simple little stories. They were always filled with danger and adventure. And uh, today she's way off in the north teaching an quite adventure of her own. Got to have a good story to tell. That's what we did. Told lots of good stories. And the, uh, the rinks, those were good, too. Never forget that. Little community event. Everyone would come and get lots of exercise. Healthy. Appreciate the winter lives up here. Sometimes I wonder why people live up here, but get lots of fun outside, and we did it. So, our yeah. rinks uh, were Melody, my daughter, the youngest daughter. She said one day, "Dad, can you make me a little rink?" So we started with this tiny little rink, and then the boys kind of saw and said, hey, bigger rink, bigger rink, bigger rink. And every year it grew and grew and grew until on Saturday, the community would be coming into our backyard. There'd be all kinds of people I hardly even knew who they were, and they were on our rink skating. It was a wonderful privilege. Awesome time we had. Remember that, uh, I remember the wooden slide you made, Dad, at the uh, Parsonage, built this wooden slide for the wintertime. Was there ice on it? Did you put ice, like water down there to make it... Yeah. Icy, and then we had our sleds and our crazy carpets, and we just fly down there. Yeah, it was probably today people would outlaw type of thing in the backyard because it was right up at the edge of the garage roof. You guys climbed up this clamory little rickety ladder to slide down this thing. It was about, I don't know, about 30 or 40 feet long and went sliding out into the back. Yeah, I don't think Trudeau would let us have that. Probably. Fun. I looked, I had a picture of it, and I thought, oh, dear Lord. It's a wonder the thing didn't crash and He's kill built, one of my children or something. Right. Thought about it. Made it out of two by fours and plywood and propped up these little wee kids. <laughs> what I think is more dangerous is the slides that we had. We went to at Camp Livingston going down 40, 50 foot hills. Oh, well, those big inner tubes. Two or three people on them with the tubes flipping around. I'm surprised there weren't enough. Every, more broken necks and backbones. Every winter we went to, uh, we did a family retreat in a place called Camp Livingstone and uh, near Ayrst Cliff, Magog, Quebec. We'd all pack up all the six kids, and we had to have a trailer for enough winter clothes and mitts and boots and drag them all there. We'd go for a whole week, and all these families would come together, and they would slide down this big tubing hill. It was just a wonder nobody got concussions and... I think probably, probably they did. Probably Still did. Report them. I went down one time. I think I had a bunch of kids on top of me on this big inner tube, and I went. We went flying, and I crashed and hit my back on the ground. I thought, "Oh, what have I done, Lord? Thou shalt not tempt the Lord thy God." Yeah. I had just done that. Those hills were definitely temptations for his. Oh, we had some good times, Andrew. It's been yeah. a real, yeah. been a real treat. No, I, I have a little saying: no reserve and no regrets giving everything we had for our children, our lives, and for the Lord. I look back, and I, I have no sorrow for, well, we all, we all have regrets for some things we should have said and should have done, and maybe more, but great days, opportunities. I had a doctor talk to me just in the hospital. He said, you know, I told him about my adventure with the bus. He said, you know, I was thinking about getting a motorhome and taking my children out and going for traveling and I said how old are your children he said 14 and 17 I said oh doctor do it now do it now if you're going to do it because 
time is going to be gone and they're going to be doing their jobs and they're going to have this and that and and they'll say no mom and dad so when you have the time with your children spend it live it do it take the time make a slide make a snowman do it go out there enjoy life while you have it i remember the uh one other memory i have of when we were at the parsonage which is when you were a pastor for a little while the holiness church you put you dumped flour all over the table, the dining room table. Probably a big, I don't even know how much flour. And you put the little race cars, drive the race cars through the flour, like it was a desert or something. It was like uh, controlled chaos. I don't know. Yeah, I'm not too sure what Bonnie thought about the whole episode. I think we maybe may have had She's a, rolling her eyes. We maybe had a tablecloth, but I thought, you know... Well, I don't think there was a tablecloth, but th- maybe, maybe. I forget that part. I think it was wintertime, and I thought, we don't have a Kids sandbox. Kids were going squirrely. You know, we didn't have a sandbox, so I thought, let's just let's just get like a half a pound of flour here and just dump it on there. And we got out the little dinky toys, and we made our little roads. and Little race cars. And all through there, and... You know, it wasn't a, it wasn't a, it was a very controlled play, you, you know, teach your children to be controlled. It wasn't like go in there and have a free for all because you want to have a free for all, you don't play. That's just control, teach your children control. You know, I build blocks or something with my children and we used to play with Legos for hours with my children, love playing Legos, building calls a thing. But when we played the Legos, it wasn't with the intent to smash them and destroy it after. It wasn't like, okay, we've just made a car, now let's smash it to smithereens. It was, no, it was it was a construction. <laughs> look at it and say, wow, look at this beautiful thing. We can take it apart and make something else. But there wasn't the intent and kind of a little alarmed at sometimes of our teaching, maybe our shows that are so full of destruction and blowing Violence. things up and, you know, build something and watch it blow up. There isn't a good movie anymore without something being blown to smithereens or a car crashing off a cliff. You know, I always think, that was such a beautiful car. Oh, dear. My heart is filled full of sorrow. The whole thing was just uh, computer animated. Yeah, perhaps. From beginning to end. But yeah, it does reduce your your value of things when we, we just so quickly destroy. We had another event that we did because we tried to make Sunday a very sacred day. And uh, so we had a cupboard, a whole cupboard full of books and games and pencil crayons and everything kind of thing. And it was only to be used on Sunday. It was a, it was the Sunday cupboard. So after church on Sunday, even, uh, I think we even had. I don't remember that. Jen probably does because she remembers everything. Maybe the, I think we even had Sunday cereal. Today we can have. (laughs) We can have Sugar Crisp or, you know, Captain Crunch today because it's Sunday. We just wanted to make it a very special day. And uh, then would be like Sunday afternoon. Wow, look, we get these special coloring books. They weren't just the normal everyday books. It was probably Mom's idea. Yeah, it was very controlled. <laughs> Wait till I tell you the story about the cookies. We had, uh, you know, six children and cookies were... Kind of a disappearing, Didn't last long. disappearing act. So we would buy these cookies, you know, a big, big box of cookies, and say, you know, there's so many cookies you can have a day or whatever. And we put them in like one of those little microwave things you buy, stands, you know, with a top drawer and there's cupboards at the bottom. And so I locked, actually put a lock on the bottom of the drawer, or bottom doors, and put the cookies in there. 
and uh, came back a few days later, and like the cookie bag was like three quarters gone. And I thought, I pulled out the drawer, and then I looked, you know, and unlocked the doors down below, and I thought, how did the cookie? There's no possible way that those cookies, the children couldn't get in there. There's no, there's no way that they could get in. Oh, but there was a way. They pulled out the drawer, the top drawer. They pulled it all the way out and reached their hands down through the drawer <laughs> into and found the bag of cookies and opened the, opened the bag inside the cupboard doors and began to pilfer out all those cookies, probably feeding, I don't know who came up with the idea, maybe Andrew. Probably Andrew. Maybe Andrew. And, you know, then it was just Jennifer, give me one, give me, give me, give me two. And Amy was like, well, yeah, I can have one too. And, and, uh, so the bag of cookies that was supposed to last for a week would be gone in, you know, a day or two till I found out their plot, plot and plan. All right. We would line all the children up. All right. Who's guilty? Who'd come up with this, this devious activity? And of course, Jennifer, she might've been the instigator and got Andrew to do it. And uh, back in that day, we spanked children. I don't know if you agree with that or not, but we believe there was a I don't know if you want to put that on the air. Yeah. Just kidding. <laughs> I might get looked up. And it was very controlled, little taps. Yeah, that's right. Little pats. That's right. You can edit that out. Schwack. <laughs> All right. So where do we go from here? Just wanted to get a little bit of the, the backdrop on how it all began. So that's part one. There's other parts to come. But thanks for uh, taking the time to talk today on my birthday. It's really special. This is uh, memorable. Yeah, it's really been, thankful. A, been a real privilege to have you with us, Amy, in our home and make an emergency trip home from all the way from gone and your lovely husband allowing you to leave and from a holiday that was long time planned and to care for her father. We're right now we're in home care nurses coming in day by day and, and uh, we're not too sure where the journey leads one day at a time. And we're so thankful for every day, thankful for being able to share our story with you out there today. Thanks for listening. 